Welcome to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. I love my dog, baby, I love my dog. Na, 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 I said I love my dog, baby, I love my dog. And now, let's get on with today's program of the Juno Report. Well, good evening, everyone. I guess it's evening here, and it's December everywhere. Boy, that's for sure. We're opening this edition of the Juno Report with a couple of important announcements. This is the time for us to launch our annual GDUI membership outreach campaign with Rekindled Energy. If you haven't yet renewed your GDUI membership for 2020, please respond to our email appeal coming soon and get your 2020 membership dues in to us as soon as you can. We also appreciate your talking with other guide dog users about joining us in our mission of supporting, advocating, and improving the experience of living with a guide dog for everyone. The more the merrier is an aphorism that certainly holds true here. Also, the bigger our membership, the more seriously legislators, government officials, and businesses will consider our advocacy efforts. Call our toll-free number at 866-799-8436. Again, that's 866-799-8436. Or visit our membership page at https colon slash slash guidedogusersinc.org slash join. Thank you. Our public relations committee and our publications committee are, are busy making uh, plans for enhancements to the content as well as the availability of DUI publications in the coming year. Our guide dog school's liaison, Vicki Curley, is working with others to update our guide dog school surveys, and our goal is to have the work completed early in 2020 as well. So stay tuned here on the Juno Report for lots more detailed information about these happenings as they occur. Now for today's special feature, we again return to the GDUI summer program at the convention in Rochester, New York. And this time, our presentation is called When Us and Them Become We and They. It's a, so, a program about service animals, and I think you'll really enjoy this program for today. We are including all of the content from the presenters, but because we are in a time constraint here at the Juno Report, we were not able to include all of the questions and comments from the audience. So if you want to hear those as well, you'll need to check out the podcast when it is released. Now, let's go to our presentation for today. I heard these fine, fabulous folks 
that was a alliteration, speak um, at Top Dog in January in South Carolina. And I was so moved by not only the presentation, but the realization that in this time of frustration that we're all facing with people who are working, quote, air, big, big air quotes, non-trained dogs, they're passing off as service dogs, that the last thing we need is to be divided amongst ourselves, those of us who are working legitimately trained dogs that help us and support us with our disability. And I know that historically in our community as guide dog users, um, there can be some, um, maybe not so much playing in the sandbox with the other service dog people. And I also thought I knew quite a bit about service dogs and what they did. And then I went to this presentation and I learned that I wasn't quite as smart as I thought. Um, <clears throat> and so I really f felt that I wanted to have Brad and Veronica come here and talk to us because I think the title, I really do believe the title says it all. We have to stop being us and them because at the end of the day, there's not enough of us to be us and them. We have to get together and be we and get away and get all of them, those people using non-trained, non-legitimate service dogs. We need to figure out a way to get that situation under control. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And um, I think it will be enlightening. I really do. So thank you guys so much for coming. Do you have your mic? Well, I want to thank all of the volunteers and planners who have put this event on. Um, we And everyone who has also spoken with us. We felt very welcomed. And you guys have done a great job planning. And we've had a great time so far. Oh, yes. And I'm Veronica Morris. And... <laughs> With me, I have a little nine-pound Japanese chin psychiatric service dog. She is black and white. She has big googly eyes that kind of point in different directions. She has a smushed nose, a head that's shaped like a racquetball, and as the breed standard says, a look of perpetual astonishment. She is my third service dog, and to start with, I will tell you a little bit about my history with service dogs. So um, when I was in um, graduate school getting my master's, um, I was having a lot of struggles with my bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and agoraphobia, which is fear of leaving my house. And my therapist suggested that I volunteer at the local animal shelter. So I was like, well, that sounds like a good idea. And I started walking all the dogs at the animal shelter. Now, most of the dogs, when you would take them out for walks, they would chase squirrels and bark and pull on the leash and just basically be dogs. And um, this one dog came in. And she was a Weimariner pit bull mix named Sabrina. She was a brindle color, but instead of being a black and brown brindle, she was a silver and champagne brindle. She was absolutely beautiful. And um, she had separation anxiety, which meant she destroyed the place while you were out. And um, she would, when I took her out for walks, instead of pulling around and everything, she would sit on my feet, look up at my face, and just want to have loving. And it came time for her to be put down. 
And I didn't know anything about service dogs at that point. All I knew was that this dog was special. There was something about her that really helped me out with my disabilities. So I took a chance and adopted her. Um, Within about six months, I noticed that she started naturally alerting to my mood swings and panic attacks, which gave me the time to take medication or call someone to come pick me up or, um, you know, do other breathing exercises or whatever I needed to do to not go into a full-blown panic attack or bipolar mood swing when I was in the middle of class. Um, And, um, well, actually, at that point, when I was in the middle of doing stuff around the apartment. And I was on the medication merry-go-round, as we like to call it, where I was trying different medications, and um, I uh, ended up severely ill with some of the medications. And I talked with my therapist, and I explained how much my dog helps me. And she said, well, you know, there's something called a psychiatric service dog. And I said, what's that? She told me about them, that a psychiatric service dog is a dog that helps someone with a psychiatric disability by doing worker tasks to help with their disability uh, and being well-behaved in public. And so I said, well, let's try that. And I was able to lower my medications and train my dog as a psychiatric service dog. Um, She was four years old when I started training her, so she didn't have a long working life. Um, and um, I shortly after uh, she graduated, I started looking for my second service dog. Um, at the time, I wanted a, um, a dog that was a little bit larger, so I chose to go with a silver standard poodle named Ollivander. And um, he worked out very well for me. He um, started out naturally alerting to my panic attacks by barking, which was not very helpful. And so I had to retrain him, and I did that by using just redirection um, to nudge my hand when I was having a panic attack. My first service dog, Sabrina, she would sit in front of me and look up at me when I was having a panic attack or mood swing and not take her eyes off me. Um, Unfortunately, Ollie was attacked several times, both by other pet dogs and by other service dogs, owner-trained and program-trained. Unfortunately, that happens when you're living in Berkeley, California, and you see about seven other service dogs a week. (laughs) And um, unfortunately, he developed a fear of other dogs and had to be retired early. Um, And that left me without a dog. And my agoraphobia went into... um, just overdrive. I could not leave the house. I couldn't do anything. I was unable to work. It was just horrible. Um, And so I uh, started looking for my third service dog. Now what I noticed from Ollie um, was that when I was walking around, he was a very tall uh, poodle. He was 28 inches at the shoulder. And when I was walking around, I could reach down and touch his head with my hand. And that contact with him was um, able to what I call ground me, which is keep me present in space and time. And um, doing that really helped me out a lot, um, just staying calm and knowing that I had a dog with me to help me. Um, so I knew I wanted a dog that was, was able to give have contact with me while I was on the go. Um, I also really liked the fact that whenever I was sitting at a table, he would stand under the table. He loved to stand. He could sleep standing. And he would stand under the table and put his head in my lap 
and press his head down. And that pressure, we call it pressure therapy, was able to ground me as well. Um, so whenever I would start getting anxious, he would just put his head in my lap, um, push his head down on my lap, and I was able to uh, stay calm and usually avoid a full-blown panic attack. So when it came time for me to um, choose a third service dog breed, I said, well, I want a dog that I can touch while I'm on the go and that can give me pressure therapy in my lap. So I decided, well, either I have to go with another really big dog or I could try a little dog. And I decided to give a little dog a try. Um, and I said, well, you know, if I don't like it, I can always train a new dog. Um, but I found out that I really, really like having a small service dog. I travel a lot, and they fit a lot better on the airplane <laughs> than the big dogs. Um, they cost less to feed, and she's able to, um, when I'm having um, issues in a store or something like that, I can carry her, and she... Um, provides the tactile stimulation that I need. Um, and then also when we are um, sitting down somewhere, she's able to do what I call the lean, which means that she um, leans all of her body weight into my chest by pushing off onto my, from my arms and, um, and, and really pushes that weight into me. And that has a really grounding effect on me and really helps out a lot in um, my uh, uh, panic attacks. So the, the way that you'll notice that she um, helps me with my panic attacks is that she licks me intently. So you'll see her right now, she's kind of sleeping in my arms. Um, but if I, if I start to have a panic attack, she will um, start licking my arms or my hands very intently and, um, and sometimes crawl up on my chest if, I, if I'm not able to avert the panic attack by breathing exercises and um, regular pressure therapy in my lap. So I'd like to share a little bit about how I trained her to, um, to alert me to my anxiety attacks because I think that um, a lot of people suffer from anxiety. Even if it's not disabling, you can use your service dog, your guide dog, to help with your anxiety too. So this might be helpful for you as well as being educational. So what I would do is every time I would start to have a panic attack, I would call her over to me and give her some really, really yummy treats that were reserved only for panic attack time. Mm -hmm. Pretty soon, she started sensing when I was having a panic attack, and she would come running over and say, oh, come on, feed me those treats. It was, it was very fast. And from there, I originally wanted her to do a pause up on my leg to let me know when I was having anxiety. So I, I started trying to teach her. So when, she, when I would start to have a panic attack and she'd come running over, I would ask for a pause up and then give the treats. She decided on her own that um, she would do a pause up and then she would lick me intently. Um, and I, I could tell that she preferred the licking rather than the pause up. So I said, fine, I'll let you lick even though I don't really like licking. Um, so that is how I trained her, and that's how I trained my first two service dogs. Um, I also wanted to share some things that other different types of service dogs might be able to do that are some are similar to what your dogs do, and some are quite different. So um, some of you might have heard of seizure alert dogs or diabetic alert dogs, and these dogs usually are alert to a seizure or a diabetic uh, blood sugar change based on the scent of the person. So in the case of a seizure alert 
dog. Um, the person wears, uh, once they have a seizure, they take off the shirt that they're wearing, they put it in a plastic bag, and um, send it off to the school, or if they're owner training their dog, they keep it in the refrigerator or freezer. And they use traditional scent training techniques to train the dog the difference between the smell of the shirt when there was a seizure happening and the smell of a shirt where there's no seizure. And for uh, diabetic dogs, alert dogs, um, the, the, instead of using a T-shirt, they use uh, cotton swabs that you chew in your mouth when you're having a high or a low blood sugar event, which the dogs can easily smell. Um, and again, it's the same training techniques. You might not be familiar with the fact that a lot of psychiatric service dogs are trained in something called forward momentum pull, um, which is um, if a person loses inertia and is unable to move their legs um, because due to anxiety or any other type of mental illness, um, the dog is trained just like a guide dog to give that that nice pull and get the person moving along in a straight line. Um, and something that my first service dog I trained her to do um, was to lead me home when I would dissociate. Now dissociation is when you lose yourself in space and time. And um, so I would be at the office and she would alert me. And at the time I was not on um, medication that was able to help with this. And so if I, if I didn't have someone to call to come pick me up, I would be stuck at the office for hours until the dissociation event passed because I couldn't process my environment. So I trained her to lead me from the office to the train station, get me on the right train, get me off at the right stop, and lead me back to my house. So that's something that a lot of you guys are probably pretty familiar with your dogs doing, and it's something that can be used for people with other disabilities as well. Um, let's see, is there anything else I was going to cover? Oh, yes, my favorite, absolute favorite, I don't know how I could forget it, type of thing that uh, a psychiatric service dog can help with is something called hallucination discernment. And this is for people who have hallucinations, like people with schizophrenia, and I have a friend with schizophrenia, and she often hallucinates dangerous people. And so when she walks into a room, she doesn't know who are the real people in the room and who are the hallucinating, hallucinations in the room. And so she has trained her dog whenever she walks into a room. Her dog, a beautiful German shepherd, uh, indicates with their nose, they point with their nose at all of the individuals in the room. And so she just looks down at her dog's head and watches her dog indicate who's in the room is real. And then she knows, okay, that guy in the corner with a knife, my dog didn't nod at him, he's not real. Which is just absolutely life-changing. If you can imagine, you couldn't leave your house before because you couldn't tell who was dangerous and who was, you know, hallucination. Now she can go anywhere and do anything she wants, and all she has to do is look down at her dog every time she goes somewhere, and her dog's able to tell her, oh, that's real, that's not real. So I will pass the mic. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yes. Um, so before I started using a service dog, um, I had severe uh, issues leaving the house. So as an example, um, when I would go to the grocery store with Brad, I would hold on to his shirt, I would look at the floor, and I would just follow him. 
And I was not able to look at anything in the store. I couldn't read any labels, which is important because I'm allergic to a lot of things. Um, I couldn't participate in the grocery shopping experience. Same thing in any other store. I would just hold on to Brad and look at my feet and shuffle along in the store as best I could. Um, and at the beginning, when I started using a service dog, Brad actually wasn't very supportive. He was kind of like, why do you need a service dog? I'm here to help you. Um, and so as we were in the grocery stores more and more with my service dog, suddenly I started being able to look up. I started being able to go to the end of the aisle. Sometimes I was even able to go to the next aisle over. My second service dog, Ollie, I trained to find Brad in the store, so I was able to go anywhere in the store. And, um, and if I had an issue, I could just ask Ollie to find Brad. He would lead me right to Brad, and I, I was fine. So it's really amazing. Nowadays with Hestia, she's um, been my third service dog and my favorite service dog, and she has done the most for me. And um, nowadays, after not being able to drive, um, for over a decade, I'm able to drive by myself, go to the grocery store by myself, shop with a list, manage a cart, pay money, which is something that I was never able to do my whole entire life. So um, a psychiatric service dogs and other types of service dogs are able to do so much to help people with other types of disabilities. So now I will turn it over to Brad, who is going to talk a little bit more about advocacy and solidarity. Wonderful. Yes, this will be a different flavor. So I am Brad Morris. I'm the spouse to this lovely person here next to me. And, and I, guess the, I, I guess people say I'm the, the doggy daddy of the family. Um, but Hesty only likes me when, when Veronica's not around. <laughs> then she wants to ride around in my lap in the wheelchair. She loves that. Okay. So I'd like to start with the words of Arlene Mayerson in 1992. And note that date because that will make sense of this. The disability rights movement coalesced around this goal, passage of the ADA. From the beginning, the class concept prevailed. Groups representing specific disabilities and specialized issues vowed to work on all of the issues affecting all persons with disabilities. This commitment was constantly put to the test. The disability community as a whole resisted any proposals made by various members of Congress to exclude people with AIDS or mental illness or to otherwise narrow the class of people covered. Even at the 11th hour, after two years of endless work and a Senate and House vote in favor of the act, the disability community held fast with the AIDS community to eliminate an amendment which would have excluded food handlers with AIDS, running the risk of indefinitely postponing the passage or even losing the bill. Likewise, all of the groups, whether it was an issue particularly affecting their constituencies or not, held fast against amendments to water down the transportation provisions. Grassroots organizing became an even more important because by this time, many business associations had rallied their members to write to members of Congress to oppose or weaken the bill. The perseverance and commitment of the disability movement never wavered. Through many moments of high stress and tension, the community stayed unified. 
what I'm pro- and now it's me. <laughs> that was Arlene Mayerson. What what I'm proposing to you today is that the service dog community could benefit from understanding Arlene Mayerson's lessons from 27 years ago. The way for any of us to have our rights chipped away is to look out only for yourself and to forsake any potential allies. What's necessary for protecting and maintaining your rights from ongoing attacks is to have strong coalition thinking in the grassroots, and that's all of us. I firmly believe that if we develop relationships within the community of service dog users, where we think of other types of service dog users as being way more similar to us than different, then we're going to have the louder voice we need to be heard over those who might not put your interests first. I don't know if this sounds purely theoretical, but it has a lot of practical effects in your life. So I challenge you to think of advocacy beyond stuffy people in offices writing technical letters, even though that's kind of what I do. <laughs> so so uh, say a, a random member of, of the public makes a snide comment about how a dog Hestia's size couldn't be a service dog. That makes it more likely an employee is going to give Veronica a hard time. Or imagine a guide dog school starts a local education campaign saying you can recognize service dogs by their orange collars or harnesses. That may ruin your vacation to the area because people believed it and ended up giving you a hard time. And this kind of thing I'm saying because it actually is in the accessibility info of a local transit company in a place we've gone. And similar things show up quite frequently in proposals for state legislation. So the conversations we choose to have or choose to let slip by both make vibrations in the social web, or if you prefer water, ripples in the social pond. It's just a metaphor. But we can choose to make things harder or easier for each other. But that starts with actually talking to discover what our common ground is. Lucky you, here's where we do that. So so I'm going to get into some values that guide our work and then bring it home by telling you about the service dog solidarity movement. What I want you to do when I talk about these is to think about how they play out in your life and whether you agree with what I'm saying uh, and especially why or why not. If you can come up with any questions as we go, then Veronica and I would love to have a good Q&A dialogue at the end. And if we are successful, you'll learn something, and we'll learn something, and we all might adjust our views in a way that makes the community stronger. So does that sound good to anyone? Yeah. Yeah, Wonderful. That was was better than I expected. Everyone agrees so far. Okay. Okay. So now it's time for our five advocacy values. The main advocacy issue I usually have in mind when I think about uh, how these values play out involves DOT's 2016 meetings about the flying laws or the ACAA. I served on DOT's committee with Janine Stanley and and represented service animal users as a co-chair, so I learned a lot there. I use that issue and other examples to explain what things our values lead us to support and to fight. First, the nothing about us without us principle. Again, that's the nothing about us without us principle. Something I love about GDUI is that it's a user-based group, like PSCP, um, Psychiatric Service Dog Partners. So historically, uh, 
the service dog programs and accreditation groups have been the biggest lobbying force in our niche, uh, and they still are, but things are kind of shifting over to more advocacy from the user base. So programs can be great, and I'm definitely not knocking them, but if I'm going to be honest with you, I have seen some of them sometimes represent their own interests a little bit more than those of the users. And do you remember the orange collar thing I mentioned earlier? That's one example. Okay. So the people using the service dogs are the primary stakeholders in disability laws. So we need to make sure that that's the group that gets heard the most. And of, of course, programs can and some do choose to be excellent partners in making this happen. And we're very grateful for that because we've had a lot of help from programs with our coalition work. Now, at this point, you might think, hey, Brad, sure you're in a wheelchair, but how can you represent the users if you don't have a service dog yourself? And you might not say it like that, but you might, you might have that thought. It makes sense. Uh, of course, my spouse has, has had a service dog for a long time, but that doesn't mean I have the first-person view, and I don't think I do. So totally fair point, and I'll tell you how I got here because that will help explain how we operate. This has become my life bit by bit over the years. I didn't jump in one day and decide I could fix everything myself. I just have a passion for justice in this area and a background in teaching critical reasoning classes at a university. Uh, not everyone has the same background I do. So I've worked with a board of psychiatric service dog users and I've worked with other types of service dog users uh, to apply myself where there's a need when, when one pops up. So I see my purpose as staying in touch with the community so I can keep using my skills to uplift those community voices in the most reasonable way and that's why I formed the USA USA Coalition with Janine. USA USA stands for United Service Animal Users, Supporters, and Advocates. And it's such a long name because when I came up with it, I said, who can be opposed to USA USA? <laughs> <laughs> So a lot of what we do, and you may be seeing this floating around social media or your email list, is we run surveys to keep up conversations with various service dog users so that as much as possible, the people in power can no longer avoid the principle of nothing about us without us. We need to have a way like this to collect and communicate your views so the story told is yours. The people telling your story should not be the sensationalistic media, and it should not be someone who may be well-meaning, but who thinks of you as children. The next two things we value kind of connect in that they have to do with um, human rights more directly, including two rights that sound technical, but in, in real life they're pretty simple. So first is the right to reasonable self-determination. Part of self-determination is that the government or businesses should not be able to make your medical decisions for you without your consent, telling you how you can and can't handle your disability. You shouldn't be forced to wear a symbol like an orange collar or, or a paw print armband or choose whatever symbol you want to make other people more comfortable that they know you have a disability. That should be your choice as an adult. 
And if you like orange collars, then more power to you. Wait, use the orange collar. Put it on yourself. Put it on your dog. Put it on your friend. Well, let your friends decide for themselves. But that's great for you. This value of self-determination leads us to support responsible owner training, just like we support responsible program training. So a lot of people aren't familiar with why the heck owner training. So owner training is especially good for some people when you've got uh, one of these things going on, and one of these is just something I think you all know exists in the community, especially for non-guide service dogs. There's way more demand for service dogs than what programs can provide. So some people are going to be left out. And some people, they might want to learn how to keep up with their dog's training by learning how to do that training in the first place. Or they might want to further train a pet dog, like Veronica mentioned, her first service dog, if it already seems like a good candidate. And they're not always good, but that's why you consult people like psychiatric service dog partners to say, hey, is this a good idea? Um, And you might have a good reason to use a special breed or a size that a program doesn't train. And, of course, there's money. You might not be able to afford or raise tens of thousands of dollars for a program dog because not all, not everyone can get a service dog provided by a program because that requires massive generosity from the public that doesn't go toward um, all kinds of service dogs. So you might be able to afford and buy and train uh, a dog with the help of a professional trainer, and that's what Veronica's done over the years. Um, And you might need a dog to learn your body's baseline over time to do its job by recognizing departures from that baseline. So this can be your unique behaviors, sense, like Veronica discussed. It could even be your heart rate or something else that happens when you're having symptoms, whatever your departures are that may or may not be unique to you. So since any of these factors apply to tens of thousands of people with disabilities, and many of them have already actually owner-trained a service dog, we agree with the Department of Justice that this should remain a pathway to independence for people. For value number three, being against discrimination is something that's just theoretical for most non-disabled people. Some people say able-bodied, but when we're talking about people with psychiatric disabilities, I like to just use the complementary term to disabled, and that's non-disabled. It's straightforward. So I'm sure many of you have Um, here have experience with discrimination that's more personal than the theoretical, whether it's the everyday being talked down to or ignored, yep, or or it's to not being hired for a job and wondering whether it's because of your guide. Thank you. (laughs) That's right. Sing it. All right. So so it's, it's pretty clear that valuing human rights means that we fight discrimination based on disability status And that's just a way of saying whether someone is disabled. What you might not think about is discrimination based on disability type, which is just what category your disability falls into, like vision, hearing, psychiatric, mobility, and so on. Being against discrimination leads us to fight laws like DOT's Air Carrier Access Act regulations that are supposed to stop discrimination on the basis of disability, but instead, In black and white, they set up barriers only for the service dog users with mental health disabilities. This is discrimination based on disability type, where there's a hierarchy set up of disability and some are treated as less than. Imagine the law saying that airlines 
are allowed to make you give a, a 48 hours advance notice um, if you have a guide dog and make you pay to go to a doctor to get a special letter dated within a year that you may only be able to use for that airline that says you have some kind of disabling vision issue. Now imagine beyond that, because I know some of you are comfortable with providing as much documentation as someone asked for, now imagine that no other type of service dog user can be forced to do those things. Do you like that? No, I don't like that either. Well, there's some dog out there. Yeah, the dogs don't like it either. Well, that, that's how it's been for almost a decade for those with mental health disabilities. Of course, as many of you know, it's getting even worse now for the whole community, but especially for the psychiatric service dog users. But don't let our organization's name fool you. And just as a reminder, it's Psychiatric Service Dog Partners, in case you forgot. Our advocacy is centered in disability rights in overall service animal contexts which means that we push for what's best for all types of service dog users, including guide dog users. Um, we don't see any good reason why we shouldn't band together in coalition forces instead of acting like there's a pie. And if I get a piece of that pie, then somehow that leaves less for you. We, as a community, are easier to conquer and divide um, if, if we divide ourselves like that. You know, we're making the work easier for outside forces. Um, and we have so many common interests. So the last two of the values that we'll quickly cover are safety and then practical considerations, which takes us far beyond the theory. So don't, mistake, uh, don't make the mistake of thinking that because we stand up or, for me, sit up for disability rights, that we... <laughs> Thank you. I, I really appreciate when people laugh at my wheelchair jokes. Thank you. <laughs> they often fall flat. Okay. So, so oh, you, you are so kind. <laughs> so don't make the mistake of thinking that because uh, we stand up for disability rights that we think everyone with an untrained, poorly behaved emotional support animal should have the same access rights as someone with a service dog. If you invest a ton of time money, heart, and sweat into developing your psychiatric service dog, you have an incalculable interest in your dog not getting attacked. That could create a years-long and mighty deep setback in your life where you're su you've suddenly lost your ability to function in the world. And think of Veronica's story here, where and Ollie was attacked. And yes, many other people here. So... That's one reason why we care, just as much as anyone, that service dogs have safe environments to work in. We want any animal, whether it's supposed to be a service dog or not, to be safely behaved in public. And I'm not going to care whether you have the fanciest ID from the fanciest school if your dog is biting my dog, right? True. <laughs> no ID or certification guarantees good behavior in the moment, but they can present barriers to some owner trainers or create a pipeline for fraud where the gatekeepers, because of that ID card that's being waved in their face, where the gatekeepers ignore behavior because they're focused on the documentation and that's what they see as a free pass because they're not experts, they can only hold one thing in their mind at a time and Hey, that looks official. So it's okay, your dog is biting my leg now. So, <laughs> all right, so um, 
the last thing that we keep in mind in our work sounds boring, but the general heading of practical considerations is where the rubber dog boots meet the road. This is a catch-all category. It forces us to consider how our other values all come together, how they meet with the needs and interests and interests of others like airlines and flight crews, and finally, how this can all actually form a plan that can be implemented in real life. We've heard so many solutions to access issues, and I'm especially thinking of flying here, from folks of all backgrounds who have the, the magic fix. And, oh, they don't know why their simple fix doesn't just happen already because it's so obvious. So what I've learned, and, and I've developed my views over time on this, is that if you're not looking for all the angles, actively looking for them, and always striving to learn about all the stakeholders' perspectives, not just your own, it's so easy to miss something important. So, for example, your average psychiatric service dog user is not aware of the issue guide dog users sometimes have with being forced to sit in a wheelchair to get assistance at the airport. Yeah. A, a service dog program CEO might just think that owner-trainer is another term for faker. An airline official might not be that proficient in human rights. Or a government regulator might not have asked airline folks whether a requirement to attach service dog information to the person's ticket could work without some unreasonable computer change across the industry. There's some very practical considerations there that it boggles the mind. You, would, you wouldn't come up with it on your own unless you talk with the people in the industry. So you can see what I'm talking about if, um, with all these issues. If you check out USA USA's 358-page history of recent service animal recommendations, um, and if you are interested, that's at psych.dog slash USA USA, and I'll say that again in a bit. That's also where you have your final chance at that, that address uh, through Wednesday, tomorrow, uh, this July 10th, to take a survey to give airport operators feedback on relief areas, wayfinding, and more. So that's, again, at uh, psych.dog/usausa. That's P-S-Y-C-H dot D-O-G slash U-S-A-U-S-A. And please take that survey because otherwise the airport operators will not hear from you. So speak up, speak up when you have the opportunity. So I'm going to wrap up by mentioning um, the service dog solidarity movement. You may have heard of the solidarity scarves or what they represent. Uh, the service dog solidarity movement is pretty much a separate thing from the values I just talked about, but they do pair well together. Um, if you don't want to assume the worst of service dog users you haven't met, this movement is for you. If you're at least open to the possibility of dialogue within the service dog community, if you think service dog advocacy has a better chance of success with coalitions than cutthroats, or if you just think we all deserve the same fair shot at living our lives, this movement is for you. Do you have to agree with all of the values I was talking about earlier? No way! This is more of an attitude and approach than any specific advocacy position. So the optional physical manifestation of this solidarity movement is the green solidarity scarf. 
It can be any green scarf you wear or have your dog wear for the purpose. You can put it on a harness if you want because we're not selling scarves. Not a fundraiser for us, but I can give you info on where to get the Kelly Green Silk Scarf version that Veronica and I have on today. Um, I actually have some up here for after the session. So if you're nice and you, or you ask a good question or make a thoughtful comment, you might get one if you just come up and say hi. <laughs> yeah, if you laugh at my jokes, well, you, you know me. You've got me pegged. All right. Um, so anyway, the, the point isn't the object itself, of course. It's like a cause bracelet. The object is, uh, the point of this is that we remember to be open and maybe even make an effort to talk with people with other disabilities or non-guide service dogs. And this is whether it's an in-person meetup or just being actively friendly on social media, because you know how social media can be, being actively friendly can go a long ways. So this attitude and approach is the foundation to strong and unified grassroots advocacy, because we do a lot of coalition work with organizations too. Um, but the, the thinking is that if you don't know your neighbors when there's an issue in your neighborhood, it's too easy to dehumanize them and take the stance of it's your home against the world. Um, but this isn't a kumbaya thing, even though that's all right if you like that. Um, I think Veronica likes that. So <laughs> she, she does. Um, but it's because we're easy to break when we're not at least a little bit bundled together. So that's it for me. Bring on the tough questions. We don't want to shy away from talking about what's going on um, what's on your mind because you're afraid of hurting our feelings. We're here to break down walls in a genuine way. I'll, I'll bring the mic around to people. Danielle, you're first. Hello again. Okay, first of all, Psychiatric Service Partners, is that strictly advocacy or is it an organizational coalition uh, that does, among other things, or serves, among other purposes, advocacy? Great question. I meant to cover that at the beginning, and I totally forgot. So Psychiatric Service Dog Partners is a all-volunteer-based nonprofit, and all of our volunteers have disabilities. And um, mainly what we do is we help people through Internet and phone support either train their own psychiatric service dogs or obtain psychiatric service dogs from programs. We also do a lot of advocacy, and most of our coalition, coalition work is through the USA USA uh, coalition. Would you like to say something about that, Brad? Um, did you say right. I, sorry, I was busy getting these scarves out because Danielle is getting one. Um, so I think Veronica might not have said we don't provide dogs. That's the first thing that people think when they hear that you're a service dog organization. But instead, we are an all-volunteer, peer-based group. We're run by people with disabilities. We do not have kennels or an office. We operate out of our homes nationwide with our board. So uh, do, do I want to help you? Our annual budget is low. Of course, you're welcome to help with that. Um, but yeah, that's what gets us here so that we can talk with people is donations and also the consulting work that we do with trial attorneys for the Department of Justice or for other court cases. All that money goes straight to getting us here doing this sort of thing with you. Okay. Um Here you go, the mic. 
I like you both very much, and I like your little dog, too. <laughs> but I'm going to be mean, and I'm sorry. That's okay. In, when I was in school in the late 70s, their disability movement was just starting to coalesce. And we did the whole hands, kumbaya, we're all together. We're all sisters and brothers under the skin. And we got our university to put in ramps and to make doorways accessible. And then I said, okay, now you guys got that. You're not done. We have to have Braille on the elevators. And they said, you know, we're done. So unfortunately, as much as I agree with you in many respects, you guys are just a bunch of sighted people still. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I do support owner trainers, but where's the, where's the guarantee? I went into the doctor's office, and the nurse would not let my dog in the office because a service dog bit her a couple of months ago, and then here I am having a problem. So I'm sorry, but I figured I had to bring all that up. This is Andrea. Can I just say something? Um, and this is something that, that um, Brad and Veronica and I talked about this morning at breakfast, but in a point that I think is really important, and that I always say when I'm talking to anyone about this, which is that this issue of fake service dogs and 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 real service dogs, and it, a lot of it comes down to behavior. And I I invite anyone, if my dog is misbehaving and is not acting appropriately, I don't care where my dog was trained, kick me the hell out because he doesn't belong there. Um, And there are guide dogs and there are legitimately trained service dogs who are not well behaved. And there are completely not trained service dogs who are fine. They never make a peep. So it's just an important thing. I think when we get ourselves all worked, when I get myself all worked up, I I have to remember that guide dogs legitimately trained service dogs, they're all dogs. And a lot comes from what we as handlers reinforce and allow. And I don't care what the dog's sign says or where it's trained. If it's ill-mannered, it needs to go. Agreed. Agreed. But and, I, and, and unfortunately, it could be a, a legitimately trained service dog that bit someone. It's unlikely, but it could be. I mean, there are guide dogs that come into restaurants and they smell awful. And I wish they would kick them out. I don't care where they're trained, but they don't. They're too scared. So we have a behavior not belongings campaign um, where we are trying to encourage people to educate businesses that please do if you see a service dog that's misbehaving or a dog in your store doesn't have to be marked as a service dog, any type of service dog, if they're misbehaving, please kick them out. And I think Brad wants to say something. Right. I like to take this to the general point so we have principles to work with in the future when we think about it. And it's a very common reaction to think there's a problem. This is very frustrating. We need laws to fix the problem. And we have laws. We ha- oh, no, no, no. I, I don't mean to characterize you, but that's, I hear that sort of sentiment all the time. And so what we have to realize is we have laws. What we don't have is enforcement of laws and businesses being educated about their rights and empowered to exercise those rights. Because no matter how many more laws you pile on top, if that doesn't happen, it doesn't matter what the heck the laws say. How will we know when a dog is a legit service animal 
from when a dog, when a person is just trying to, you know, get a dog on and not have to pay or whatever. Um, I know with us guide dogs, obviously our dogs have to be trained because they do specific work. And we have our harnesses and that and an ID from the school that says that our dogs are guide dogs and we look disabled. But you guys, it's a little bit different. I'm not against you. I'm with you. But how do you legitimately know when someone has a disability or they're just trying to, you know, play it off a little bit? Even in our community, I think we have a few fakers, but not usually that easily to get away with. Well, all service dogs under the ADA are required to do work or tasks to help a person with a disability. And also under the ADA, if the dog is not behaving appropriately, peeing, pooping, barking, biting, growling, they can be kicked out, and they should be kicked out. That's how you can tell if it's a legitimate service dog or not. If you walk by that dog and it starts trying to attack your dog, probably not a legitimate service dog or maybe a legitimate service dog that's having a really, really bad day. In that case, I try to judge based on what the handler does to control their dog. If the handler doesn't control their dog, I know that's not really a legitimate service dog. If the handler is really embarrassed, leaves, tries to get their dog under control, maybe it's a dog having a really bad day. But all service dogs have to be under control, and if they're not, they should be kicked out, and legally they can be kicked out. And I'll give it to Brad. Right, really quickly. Um, there's the, the practical and then there's the legal. And the practical, I've, I've heard a, this sentiment refrain um, many times. If there is a dog that no one even notices, and it's not a, quote, legitimate service dog, maybe even the person doesn't have a disability, but it's perfectly behaved, yeah, that upsets us because, well, it's taking advantage of disability rights laws that aren't in place for them, but at least that dog is not going around attacking dogs. So really, service dog or not, we really want to focus on the behavior. And then the legal aspect is you have the two questions and under the ADA that you can ask. Of course, if it's obvious someone has a disability and the dog's not misbehaving, you shouldn't be bothered. You should get on with your day. But those two questions are in place to help people ascertain that. And if someone's lying, then yes, that's infuriating, but they can't be kicked out unless there is some behavioral problem. So it's frustrating, but that's life, I guess. Brad, can you tell us those two questions? Yeah. Uh oh, is this a quiz? No, uh, I just. <laughs> yes, it's a quiz. So you're being tested. If you want a present, you get to have to head in this question. Is this a dog or service dog required for a disability, and um, what work or task is it trained to assist you with? What work or tasks is it trained to assist you with? And, boy, we have a page just on work and tasks. If you want to learn all about that, I've written academic papers on it. Well, and that is going to have to wrap up our presentation for today. We certainly appreciate uh, Brad and Veronica sharing their perspective with us, and uh, we definitely are appreciative of Andrea getting this presentation together for our summer convention at Guide Dog Users. Well, and that's going to wrap up the Juno Report for today as well. Thanks so much for uh, coming along, and uh, we'll do it again in January. You've been listening to the Juno Report. Brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. 
The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with The Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is Juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. Until next month, this is Deb Cook-Lewis with the Juno Report saying, be good to your dog.